All right, good morning. Okay, did that not bless y'all's socks off? Not that, but what came before that? Come on now, come on. My friend George, I was in the restroom. We were just visiting, you know. And we were in the restroom, and, and, and I was in the other part of the restroom. And, and George, hey, he, Brother Rain, this is George. I said, yeah, George. He goes, I want you to know something. He goes, you know what? I can come to this church seven days we go on to, whether I'm sick or not. And I figure if I can go anywhere else when I'm sick, I can come to church when I'm sick. Now, listen, that's the way it ought to be. There ought to be a hunger for God and the house of God that keeps us here week in and week out. And stuff like that is what I'm talking about. That's such a powerful message. But here's the problem. One line that song said, I'm all churched out. We need to learn that church is not the answer. Jesus Christ is. Because if you depend on church to be your answer, you're going to get all churched out. But when you got Jesus, you don't get churched out. And then there's another song. We keep seeing these good songs where it said, you know, my orphan heart got a name. Well... I, and I leaned over to Judy. I don't know if she even heard me or not. I said, that would be child of God. One day I was an orphan, and God the Father adopted me, and I became his son. I became a child of God. Now, that's just good stuff. That's good news. There's, I tell you what, there's power in the Word of God. There's power in the Gospel. There's power in Christ power in the Holy Spirit, and it can be life-changing. That's really what this whole series is all about. We're right, just starting really good, our Home Guard series. Every year we do a series on family issues, and the, and the, and the catchy phrase this year is Home Guard. Last week we talked about guarding your heart, and today we're going to talk about guaranteeing, or guarding your, and i got brackets, Future marriage. So, guarding your future marriage and your marriage is where we're going. Now, it was really strange, but Judy said it worked good, and I always trust her. But Judy said, I used apples for the illustration last week, and I talked about what's the most important part of the apple, and I talked about the skin was important, it's aesthetically pleasing, and you got the white part, and that's the meaty part, and that's important because it tastes good. But I said the most important part of the apple was the core because it holds everything together. And in the core are those seeds. And that's our legacy. That's the hope of future apples. That's our hope of our future is the seeds that live within us. And, and we base all our core values, no pun intended again, core values on our inside, on our heart, on that very core. Well, shoot, I said to myself, I said, if apples worked good last week, They'll work good this week. So here we have a beautiful picture of apples. Now, now apples, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says, this all be an interesting sermon. I need to tell you something. My ears are kind of plugged up. So if you said something to me today and I didn't respond, it's because I didn't hear you. And if I fall off the stage today, it means my equilibrium is not exactly what it ought to be. All right? But apples, they say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. But here's the deal. Not all apples are created equal. Now, our goal in choosing apples is to get a good pair, and our goal for life, if God chooses us to marry, then is to have a good mix. And throw that next slide up there, please. There you go. That's kind of the goal, and God doesn't want two people exactly alike, because again, if, if people were exactly alike in a marriage or in a relationship, then one of them would be non-essential. And so we want to take a little of each and bring it together and make a wonderful combination. But again, not apple, not all apples are created equal. Give that the next picture there. You know, sometimes you end up with this. 
You know, you got a beautiful apple on the outside, but inside it's just not what it ought to be. So you can't always judge a book by its cover, and you cannot judge an apple totally by its skin. There might be other surprises in there too, such as that. Yeah, you know what? Somewhere in my past, okay, somewhere in my past, it seems like I remember biting into an apple and getting something I didn't want. In fact, can I tell you a real quick story? I got to be careful because I'm in a story mood, and that's always a dangerous thing. But but I was on vacation when I was like eight years old, and vacation to us was going to see a brother or a sister, and uh, that's what vacation was. And so again, we were not very wealthy, and and so we drove out to Texas, and for a real special treat, we um, stopped and got a candy bar. Dad stopped for gas, and we got a candy bar, and and I remember this because you know me and food go way back, and and so we had a Mounds bar, a Mounds bar, and so guess what happened. On top of that mountains bar was a little hole. And, yeah, this is a sad story. And because, and, again, you know, food and I go way back. And so there's this little, little hole. And I looked at showed my mama, and she says, there's a worm in that. And sure enough, we broke that sucker open, and guess what? There's a worm in my candy bar. And you know what my mama did? I said, protein, mama. It's just extra protein. She made me throw it out the window. So I'm not, I don't know if I've ever bitten an apple or not, but I've had a candy bar with a worm, and it's always an unpleasant surprise. So what's up next in our little pictures of apples there? Now, you've got to make sure that when you're, when you're doing this relationship thing, that you compare apples with apples, not apples with oranges, because they, of course, are not the same thing. And then sometimes things happen to apples, and this is our last, our next last picture, is, you know, an apple over time can turn into something that it wasn't. Apples, if they're left in the basket long enough, eventually do go soft and they get rotten. Um, so we're going to look at that, all of that hopefully today, uh, and not with apples, but with our lives. But our goal is, this last slide, there's our goal. How do we choose a good mate, a right mate um, for us as we journey through life? And how do we live with the mate that God has given us or that we have chosen might be a better way of putting that. Now, our first scripture this morning, I want to give us a couple of scripts of introduction, and then we're going to look at holy moly and holy matrimony. Holy moly and holy matrimony. Now, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, there's a really good verse, whether we're talking about choosing a mate or whether we're talking about living with the mate we've got, Okay. It applies to both of them. It's a good scripture. Here's what it says. In Proverbs 13, 20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Let me read it to you again. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You see, life is a journey, and it's very important that we choose our life mate, our companion in life, very, very wisely. I thought it interesting, by the way, to note that in the Bible, in the word wise, it says the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge of the fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear or knowledge of God. And also, interesting enough, and in Psalms 14, 1, and the word fools, it says the fool has said, the foolish has said in his heart, there is no God. So if you take this and apply this to relationships, which I think is totally in context, all right, 
then, then if we choose our mates and if we choose the journey with our companion and we choose someone that is wise and understanding that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, when we choose to walk with someone who fears God, and that's the word reverence, by the way, who fears God, who respects God like we do, then it, they, we strengthen each other in that relationship. However, if we choose poorly... Okay, if we choose someone who does not respect God like us and might even say there is no God, I choose to live as if there's no God, we're going to suffer harm. So the choosing of a mate that has the same core values as we do and maintains those core values is just hugely important. I came up with three things that you can ask yourself when choosing a mate that I think, I think are pretty appropriate. Now, now these are like those little things that preacher does, okay? So they kind of mean the same thing, but they don't. You need to ask yourself before you enter into a relationship or as you enter into a relationship, three things. First off this, does the person edify you or eat you? Does the person edify you or does he or she eat you? Now, obviously, edify means to build up. Does the person that you're considering build you up or does he eat you up? Or does she eat you up? Does she uh, take away the core of who you are? Do you feel yourself being drained and put down and made less of in this relationship? The second thing, it kind of means the same thing. Does the person complete you or consume you? Complete you or consume you. Now, Judy said something, and I, I will not remember the exact quote, but I, I even made comment. This was last night. We were not even talking about the sermon. And, uh, but she said something like, you complete me. You, know, you, make me, you make me better. And I said, wow, Judy, thank you for saying that. So does the person that you're considering, or as you're making your shopping list of a future mo- a mate, does the person edify you, or is that person going to eat you up? Does the person complete you or consume you, drain you, suck you dry? Lastly, does the person fulfill you or fracture you? Does the person fulfill you, make you a better person, or do they fracture and leave you broken? And all this, all this is under the umbrella of God's dream and God's purpose for you. Now, hopefully, again, this obviously this message right now at this point talks to believers. And hopefully you understand that, that you, you should have a God purpose. What, what does God want to do in your life? What is your God dream? And under that umbrella, ask those questions. Am I looking for a mate who edifies or eats up? Am I looking for a mate who completes or consumes or one who fulfills or fractures? Very, very, very important. We must choose a life mate, that one that respects God like we respect God, to the same, by the way, not only respects God, but the same passion and hunger for God as you have. We should do that. Understanding that if we do not, then we could and will suffer harm. Now, the good news is, is in James chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, you remember, of course, that James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You remember that. He was raised up with Jesus, all right? Did not come a believer until after the resurrection, okay? But he wrote these words. And this is a verse we use a lot. It's almost like that Philippians 4.13, which we're going to use today somewhere along the sermon. Here's what James says. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. So, so whether you're choosing your mate or you're making choices on how do I live with this man, this woman that I've married, James says this, God is a great 
source of wisdom. He will give you wisdom in choosing your mate, and he will give you wisdom also in living with your mate. Now, it's like this, you know, everyone, well, most every person in church loves the word of God as long as they agree with it. Am I right? Come on now. You know, that preacher will be up there preaching, you know, and you're going, amen, brother, amen, brother, amen, brother. And all of a sudden, he says something you don't agree with, and all of a sudden, he's, you know what I'm talking about, all right? So here's the deal. Here's the deal. We need to be willing to say, okay, God, even if I don't agree with your wisdom, give me the wisdom to follow your wisdom. If I don't agree with your wisdom, give me the wisdom to follow your wisdom because God's way is always the right way, the right way. So with that introduction, those thoughts in mind, the question becomes this. How do we choose the right mate? I'm having a hard time with words today. How do we choose the right mate? Well, it starts with holy moly. Now, I have personal affection for this term because it happened like this. I went to church on a Wednesday night. I did not go to that church. I decided to go to that church. And I walked in on a Wednesday night, and you've heard this story before, but most of you probably don't remember, and that's okay. But I walked in the side door, and standing over by the piano was a group of young women. I think about five or six of them. One of them, who was about this tall and had long brown hair, had little granny glasses on. You know, this is the 70s. You know, little granny glasses on. When I saw her, she instantly caught my attention. And like most men of that age and today's age, I said, holy moly. Have you ever had a holy moly moment? Come on, man, if you're married, you better have one. If not, you just lost your lunch. Let me just tell you, you're going to get peanut butter and jelly for lunch. Yeah, yeah, when you see that person that just wows you away, well, you get wowed and you go, holy moly. Well, that woman, that, that holy moly me then, holy moly me again today. And I can honestly say this. When, when that lady who did the Baptist children's home thing, who happens to be my wife, Got up on stage, and I really hadn't noticed her outfit. I saw her out in the foyer, but I didn't know. When she got up here, I said, holy moly, she's good looking. And I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to get lunch, Judy. I'm just telling you, I said, she is an incredibly attractive lady. And so you got to have that. It's good to have, it's good to have them holy moly moments. But here's the deal, and I want to teach you this today, is that, You've got to remember, when it comes to choosing a mate, holy moly ain't all there is. You know, they, the old saying is, beauty is only skin deep. You know, if you think about the apple, the skin is very attractive and aesthetic, but that does not guarantee a good apple, all right? But our tendency is, and our culture is, and men, we're eat up with it. Ladies, you do it too. You know, you, 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 you go, he's just an incredibly attractive man. Okay, and but but we men are just eat up with it. Okay, we're just like totally consumed with our eyes, with our physical attraction. We we see a beautiful woman and, and we instantly want to marry her. You know, it's just like oh, let's just get married. You know, but but beauty is really only skin deep. And I'll tell you this right now, the heart trumps skin every time. The heart. So young people, when you're looking for your future mate, 
remember this, more important than the way the skin is stretched over their bones is the heart that beats at the core of their being. And that is so countercultural. Because, you know, beautiful people marry beautiful people. You know, we kind of marry in that, in that way. And that is like wrong. I, I wasn't going to tell this story, but I will because I told David this week. It's just, it's just a good memory. You know, back a long time ago, way back in Cobden days, we used to go to Jacksonville, Florida, G, the preacher's school. And I'm sure you were there this night. And a young lady got up. And uh, she was a very attractive young lady. And she got up and she sang. I think she had the choir behind her singing. The place just erupts, you know. And we're all standing and clapping. And she comes down off the stage. And we're talking about three or 4,000 people here. She comes down off the stage and happens to sit about five rows in front of where Judy and I were sitting. Okay? And she sits down next to this little dumpy guy. Listen, he couldn't spell Tom Selleck. Or Brad Pitt. Okay? And he reached over and put his arm around that girl and whispered in her ear. And I think I said to Judy, I know I said to anybody, I think I said to Judy, because he must have a wonderful personality. <laughs> so, so our natural tendency is to think of beauty, but the heart is so much more important. Now, about a month ago... I was listening to a sermon series by Andy Stanley on the life of David. And he was preaching on this scripture I want to share with you this morning in a different context. And it instantly popped in my brain, knowing I was going to preach this family series you know, a, you know, a long time ago. This popped in my brain because it really illustrates the importance of how we choose our mate and how the heart trumps skin every time. Here's the setup. There's a guy named Samuel. He was a prophet. And there was a guy named Saul who was the king. Saul had messed up royally, and God said, I am ready for a new king. So God sends Samuel on a journey to Bethlehem, the city of David, to Bethlehem to choose a new king. And he said, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I'm sending you to the household of Jesse. Now, Jesse was a dude who lived in Bethlehem. So Samuel shows up there, arranges for a feast, and he invites Jesse and seven sons, seven sons to the feast. And so when he gets there, you know, Samuel begins calling the sons of Jesse forward for the purpose of God saying, that's the one, that's the one. Now we pick this up in 1 Samuel 16, verse number 6. All right, here's how it goes. When they came, Jesse and the sons, when they came, he looked on Eliab, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, let me explain. You're going to get it in just a minute, but let me explain. There's a couple of things about Eliab that you should know. One, he was the oldest. And Samuel made the natural assumption that the oldest son would be the one chosen to be the next king. Secondly, he was tall. He was tall. And Saul, the current king, was tall. So when Samuel saw Eliab, who was the oldest son, and he was tall, taller than anyone else, 
All right, like Saul was, he naturally assumed this was going to be the next king. But you're going to see in just a moment, not only that, apparently he was pretty good looking because it says, for God said, do not look on his appearance. So apparently he was a good looking guy. So he's tall, dark, and handsome. He's the oldest, and Samuel naturally assumes this must be the one. Don't we do that? We do that so easily when we... Physically appraise someone with our eyes, and that being the the key to how we choose our mate. Well, here's how the story develops. Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed us before him, but the Lord said to Samuel. Now, this is just incredible advice. And this is a time you guys ought to uncross your arms and start taking notes. Because this is important. No, seriously. This is important stuff. This is some of the best advice that you're going to get in church this week. Here's how it goes. God said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue because I have rejected him. The best mate for you may not be the tallest. The best mate for you may not be the best looking. It's important that we look deeper. There's something going on bigger here. And God was wise enough to teach us, teach this to us. Okay, there's something bigger going on than getting a good-looking king, a tall king, and a king who looked kingly. There's something bigger going on. And when we choose our mates, when we choose our mates, when you're examining and looking forward, looks are going to be on the list. But we've got to have the wisdom, the godly wisdom, to look deeper than skin and look at the heart, because that's exactly what God says. And verse number number seven continues, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Is that not true again? Isn't that what we do? We look on the outward appearance. We're drawn to people that on the basis on their appearance. God's, God, he says, I don't look as men look on the outward appearance. Here it is. But the Lord looks on the heart. Why? Because the heart trumps skin every time. The heart trumps skin every time. So when we're choosing our mate, the most important thing, I know this is countercultural, you're saying, but Dwayne, I know it's countercultural, but the core is more important than the skin. The heart is more important than the skin. If you're a believer today, If you are a believer today, that man or that woman's heart for God is one of the most important things you must consider. Trust me. Trust me. The story goes on. Verse number 8. Then Jesse, Jesse, boy, can't get words out. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. This is older son number two. We don't get a lot of details. We just know he's number two. So Samuel, or Jesse made him the pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Well, verse nine. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And then Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now, get the picture again. 
Seven sons. And by the way, just keep filed away in your mind that Samuel invited all the sons of Jesse. And seven of them passed by. And starting with Eliab and going right down the list, no, 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 no. Then something happens. The word says in verse number 11, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? Is this all you got? Because, you know, God hasn't chosen this. Is this all you got? Now watch, watch, watch. And he said, verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, let me set this up for you. And, and there's, there's a lot of material going around about this now on, on preaching circuits. But the bottom line is this, and this is probably undeniable. Samuel went to Jesse and said, invite all your sons to this meeting. He invited seven of them. He did not invite, I'm sorry, he did not bring the eighth. Samuel said, bring all your sons. There were eight of them, and he invited seven. For some reason, Jesse said, whatever the prophet's got in mind, this guy is not a candidate. It wasn't because he needed someone to keep the sheep. There were other people to keep the sheep. For whatever reason, this father said, this son is not worthy of, to be at this meeting. The most unlikely of candidates ends up being the candidate. I'm telling you, look at me again. Look at me again. When you are choosing your mate, when the time comes and and you say, God, you know, do you have someone for me? And I'm not one of those guys that hold to there's one particular person. I think there's a type of person. Okay, so God, you have a person in mind for me. Don't rule out the most unlikely of candidates because that may be exactly the one that God might want you to have. And the heart trumps the skin every time. Well, he's out taking care of the sheep. Samuel said, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. Now, I asked you this morning, because, you know, I've seen this term ruddy. It's in several of the translations. Judy, what does ruddy mean? And she has to be teaching on David. And she said, well, actually, I just looked at that, and, and I knew it, and I knew it, but I didn't get it. Is that often means the word fair. Now, you probably know most of the Middle Eastern peoples are dark-skinned, darker-skinned. Well, apparently David, and we have no reference that he was kingly looking. We have no reference that he was tall. But we do know that he was probably fair-skinned. He had great eyes, whatever that means. And he was handsome. But he did not look kingly. And yet, this is the one. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. What a great story. What a great advice. So if you're here and you're young and you're looking at your first life mate, if you're here today and for whatever reason you're single, okay, and you're looking for your mate, you need to take a look at the person's heart because the heart trumps skin every time. The heart trumps skin every time. Andy Stanley also, and again, I don't quote Andy much anymore, but but he does have some good lines, you know. 
So often, particularly when our age catches up with us a little bit and we find ourselves in our 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, we, we get this sense that time is passing us by, you know, and, and you know, we'll, it's, like we'll, we'll, it's like we'll take anything, <laughs> you know. I'm getting desperate here, Dwayne. Well, you know what? Tomorrow, David and I are going to the train station, and we're getting on a train. Now, both of us are wise to know enough to know that not any train will do. Because you see, we're going to Chicago. And if we wait until about 10 or 11 o'clock, there's a train called the City of New Orleans, and guess where it goes? You guys are so smart. Y'all are just incredible. That's exactly right. Now, it's a train, but if David and I get on that train, we're going south and not north. Not any, you should not choose any train. You know, any train, sometimes no train is better than the wrong train. So be careful. Choose wisely. And we go a little bit further. And there's a wonderful scripture in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that talks about, you know, about choosing a mate. And uh, this is, if you're here today and you're not a believer, this is not about we're better than you are or anything like that. It's just, it's just a basic spiritual truth that we know the Bible teaches and that it is true. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. They had some questions about marriage. And here's what he said. And this is two believers. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, again, if you do, all you have to do is to get this word yoked. It's a really good word. It means mismatched. But you can imagine if you had a big old oxen and a donkey matched together, that would not be a good match. There'd be some chafing and some things going on that would not be good. They'd end up in pain probably for both of them, all right? So the, Paul very clearly says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes on this, and here's why. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The word partnership there means a shared purpose or activity. So when you're sharing your purposes in life and the activities that you choose to do, okay, what partnership, what is that, does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? Uh, if, if church is a big part of your thing and you choose a mate that doesn't respect God and doesn't care about it, now he may say, marry me and I'll go to church, or she may say, marry me and I'll go to church. Don't count on that. Don't count on that. So if at your core value, God is really, really important, then you need to be equally yoked with another person that God is very, very important. It's just the way it works in the spiritual realm. It goes on and says this. Um, what fellowship, and that means close mutual relationships. That's what the Greek means. What fellowship has light with darkness? And it just keeps going on. What accord has Christ with Biel? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So somewhere in your, near the top of your list, and maybe the very first thing, no, I'm going to say it. The very first thing on your list should be, does this person share my faith in Jesus Christ? You know, you shouldn't date someone you're not ready to marry. And if you're not, if you're not wanting to marry an unbeliever, don't date unbelievers. I know, I know somebody say, yeah, but I married an unbeliever and later I got saved. Great for you. But a lot of times, it just don't work out that way. Trust me, I know 
34 years worth of pastoring. Trust me. I know. So Paul goes on and says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so before we move on, and boy, we've got to move on. Okay, so before we move on in choosing your maiden, the holy moly factor, remember, the heart trumps skin every time, and we should choose someone that has the same passion for God that we have. And I would even say serving God the same way that we do. All right? It's a huge, huge thing. And it applies to every single person here in this room. All right? Now, let's move on real quickly because we've got about 12 minutes left. It's holy matrimony. Holy matrimony. So here's the question. You made your choice and you married the person. How do you do that? How do you, how do you live with that person? Okay? Now, I, I got three things here that I call three powerful guiding principles on how do you live with your current mate? How do you live with the one you're married to right now? We can't do anything about the past. I'm going to go there today. How do you, what do you do? How do you live with the person that you're married to? And this is good, by the way, if they're, a, if they're a good husband or wife, if they're a mediocre husband or wife, or if they're not a very good husband or wife, these three principles apply. And they're nothing shocking, but at the same time, They're powerful. The first one is this. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Now, these are principles for every believer in Jesus Christ. And this is one of those times we like the word of God when we agree with it, and when we don't, we don't. Okay? But here's what the word of God says about living with people, and certainly it applies to our current spouse, whether it is one that is a good one, a mediocre one, or a not good one. All right, here's what the Word of God says. Be kind to one another. Because you're married to a not-so-good spouse does not give you the right to be unkind. Now, if you're lost and you're living in the world, evil for evil, baby, go for it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and we've experienced God's grace and mercy, His standard is be kind to one another even when they're not kind to us. So be kind one to another. He goes on and says, we're to be tender-hearted. We're to have compassion. Remember, compassion is, is mercy in action. It's mercy in action. Tender-hearted. Uh, forgiving one another. So if you've got a really good one, that's easier. You've got a mediocre, that stretches you. And if you've got a not really good one, that really stretches you. Okay, but we're forgiving one another. And you know the rest of the verse? Just as Christ forgave us. So how do you live with your current spouse? You be kind to them. You, you practice tenderhearted. You're forgiving uh, one another even as Christ forgave you. And that's because we are grace extenders. We've experienced grace. You need to hear this on about six different levels. When you experience grace, you extend grace. Because there's not one of us deserved God's grace, God's grace. But he abundantly extended to us. And his word clearly teaches, as we've experienced grace, we are to extend grace. So principle number one is we're to be kind, we're to be tenderhearted, and we are to be forgiving, even when they don't deserve it. If you've got a good one, a mediocre one, or a bad one. All right? The second principle is this. 2 Corinthians 5.18. 
2 Corinthians 5.18. Here's what it says. All this is from God. Paul's in a deep discussion about grace and reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So our experience should impact our present. The fact that we've experienced God's grace should impact our present so we can extend grace. And Paul says, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And what that means is this. We're reconcilers. Our our tenor is reconciliation. It impacts when we're mad at our boss at work, when there's a kid at school that, that doesn't like us, when our parents, you know, just like under our skin, okay? Our tenor is, our path is, reconciliation. When the preacher does something you don't like, when, when you do something I don't like, the, our tenor is reconciliation. We're not a buster, we're a reconciler. That's who we are. So the second guiding principle, after we're to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, we're to work on the ministry of reconciliation. Let me just say this. Even if you're in a situation and there's been unfaithfulness in your marriage, Okay, and you say, well, Dwayne, the Bible says that if there's unfaithfulness, I have the right to divorce. Well, the word right's probably not very good. The door opens for divorce. But God's first action for every situation is reconciliation. God's first action is reconciliation. I loved what my brother said. I've got it down here a little bit further, but I'll give it to you now. He did a, Brent did a ceremony the other two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And he did such a wonderful job talking about marriage. And he talked about the fact that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. Here's what he said. I remember very well. Contracts have escape clauses. Covenants don't. And when you, as two believers, tie your lives together, okay, then you're not in a contract. You're in a covenant. And the base of that covenant is God's grace and the word of God. And so we don't look for escape clauses. We look for reconciliation. How can we bring it back together? It goes on and says this. This is our third principle. Because you say about now you're going, can't do it, Dwayne. Can't do it. It's not possible. I've got a pretty good husband. I'm, I'm okay with this. But my mediocre, my bad husband, my unfaithful husband, my unfaithful wife, can't do it, Dwayne. I'm going to whip Philippians 4.13 on you because that's my third principle. I can do all things. Don't we love that verse? Don't we love that verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So before you say, I can't forgive, I can't be tenderhearted, I can't reconcile, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So all things are possible. Well, I've got about six minutes left, so let me see if I can get just a a little bit more about this matrimony thing tied in. And again, I, this is such, this is one of those things, by the way, the Bible talks a lot about marriage and choosing your mate, as a matter of fact. So there's no way we can cover it all. But I want to give you some principles to think on today. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, again, the Corinthian church had a lot of questions and Paul gave them a lot of answers. So the topic is, again, marriage, this time in 1 Corinthians and chapter 7, verse number 10. Here you go. 
And this is where the idea of marriage being a covenant and not a contract with no escape clauses comes in. I command the married. Paul does. I command the married. And he makes it clear, not I, but the Lord. So he says, I'm writing this, but this is what Jesus said. Okay, that adds a lot of credence, a lot of power to it. It had been the word of God if Paul said it, but Jesus said it. I command the married, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. And if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And, same basis, a husband is not to leave his wife. Now, before you play all these cards on me, you don't know my situation. I don't know your situation. And y'all know I'm not a rock chucker. And if you have a tendency to chuck rocks, you better put them down. But I'm going to tell you this. You know, the Word of God says it believes, it teaches the permanence of marriage. I know it's difficult. No, no, I don't know. I've never been through it. I, don't, I haven't walked your road. But infidelity is a really hard thing. Dwayne, what about abuse? I would say an abuse, get out of there. Get, get out of the home anyway. Get out of the home. Protect yourself and protect your children. I mean, don't, don't play those cards. A lot of people who, who say, well, I, I think abortion ought to be legal because of rape and incest. Well, that's less than 1%. What about the other 99.5% of choices to end life? You know, marriage is a sacred covenant. and is a permanent covenant. When it's hard and when it's not, when it's difficult and when it's not, when it's easy and when it's not. And Paul so clearly teaches here, you know, if you're married, don't leave your husband. And, and, and he goes on and says, and husband, don't leave your wife. And if you do that, then remain single. And I think the reason he said that was for the purpose of reconciliation. Because once you're remarried, that door kind of closes. I know, I know, I know. Somebody says, I want it to close. I want it to close. All I'm asking is this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, just carefully evaluate scriptures. You don't need some preacher to tell you what's up. You know, that's one thing great about being, being a believer. You know, we all can take, read the Word of God. We can understand the Word of God. We can evaluate the Word of God. We can inter- interpret the Word of God. So evaluate. Do that. God trusts you with the knowledge of the Word of God. And so if you're sitting there in that situation, okay, then go straight to the Word of God and do what it says. You can't go wrong with that. So then... Gosh, only two minutes left. So then you got the situation where I'm married to an unbeliever. I'm married to an unbeliever. And believe me, it's not easy. What do I do with that? Well, fortunately, Paul answers that. In verse number 12, he says this. But I, not the Lord. Now, keep in mind, now it's Paul saying, I haven't got a direct command from the Lord, but it's me speaking. But since we include it in the word of God, he speaks with the authority of God. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. So if you're, if you're a husband and you have an unbelieving wife and she's willing to stay with you, you need to stay with her. Don't use God as an excuse. I want to have this marriage because she's not a believer. Paul says, no. If she's willing to stay, you need to stay. He goes on and says this. And if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. So, so an unbelieving husband or wife has no reason to destroy a marriage. And I, Boy, I know y'all let me know, and my intention is not to go beyond the Word of God. But sometimes there are, quote, I'm putting quotes, okay, believers who live like lost people. And 
Maybe sometimes they are. But that's the case that Scripture applies. So, so he says, if you're willing to stay, then you stay in that relationship. Okay? And you say, well, why? <laughs> Paul gives us an answer. <laughs> Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. What? <laughs> how, how is the unbelieving wife set apart by the husband, the saved husband, and how is the saved or lost husband set apart by the saved wife? It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about influence. It's talking about the surroundings. I'm talking marriage missions. You may well be, if you're saved and your husband's lost, you may be the best missionary for him. And if you leave, you'll never win him to Christ and vice versa. Oh, Dwayne, you gain more than that? Yeah, yeah. And since we're out of time, let me go down. I'm not skipping the kids thing on purpose. And he talks about the same thing. You know, when, when, the, when the godly wife is there with the unbelieving husband, the kids are impacted by the godly wife. That's what that verse means in the middle. But look at verse 16. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Unless you stick around that unbelieving husband, and may I say backslidden husband, unless you stay there and be the missions, marriage missions, missionary you need to be, how do you know that God can't save Oh, and then you didn't stop there. Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? So there is a purpose. There is a purpose for staying in a difficult marriage. You know what it is? Redemption. It's redemption. Whether it's a carnal situation, whether it's a lost situation, it's redemption. I probably won't go to the back door today because I know this is something that you really don't particularly want to hear But it's so important. You want to know why? Because marriage is at the heart of God. Marriage is at the heart of God. And we live in a culture that's done everything you can imagine to marriage. They've tried to make it. First off, they devalued it and made it easy to get a divorce. You can walk away from marriage for no apparent reason. Then they add same-sex marriages to it. Husband, uh, men and men and women and women. They've done everything they can to change the definition and destroy marriage. And we as the church need to set the example. We need to set the example for a culture out there who desperately needs Jesus. Would you say amen to that part? Okay, so so holy moly, the heart trumps the skin every time. Seek someone who has the same heart for God that you have. Two most important things. If you're in a relationship that's difficult, you're married, you've made your choice... Okay, we are to be a forgiving, tender-hearted, kind. We are to be the kind of person um, that extends grace at every opportunity. We are we are to be the kind of people that acts like Jesus in that relationship. We're we're to believe we're to believe that with God all things are possible. That the most difficult situation can be turned around because of the power and the grace. Of God. Impact, huge. Someone sitting here today and you're single for whatever reason, you follow these principles, it's huge. It's huge. Think of the future marriages sitting in this room and how strong they can be if we'll follow the counsel of God. And I know marriage miracle stories 
where God took a horrible marriage and turned it around. I briefly read a, uh, a devotion this morning just to, from Family Life, how a couple was really struggling in their marriage, and they found a book laying in the airport about, uh, about marriage weekends. They read that book, and through God's grace, it changed their marriage. All things are possible. So today, if you're single, trust God. If you're married, trust God. Because with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you that you've entrusted to me the privilege of teaching this today. And first, Father, I want to pray for for all the, the single folks in the room, regardless of why they're single. For all the single folks. Father, if there comes a time when you open the door for a relationship, would they be wise enough to follow your word? Would they be courageous enough to follow your word? Give them the boldness and the faith to believe and to trust you. Father, I pray for the ones who are in a difficult marriage today. It's hard. I can't even fathom how hard. But God, with you, all things are possible. And I pray you will enable and strengthen the believer in that situation, the the godly one in that situation, to have the grace and forgiveness and the tenderheartedness and the, and the faith to believe that with you all things are possible. And God, whenever I preach this, I feel led to say it. So through a prayer, I'm going to say it now to these people. For those who may have a tendency to judge other people, don't let that happen. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and every person has fallen short. So don't let this be a safe place. Let it be a place where the rock chuckers empty their hands. Father, whether it's dealing with this topic or any other topic, may this be a safe place. May guard every conversation at lunch today. Don't let these words come out of anyone's mouth. Yeah, so-and-so need to hear that message. No, God. Let us be grace extenders and grace givers. Have your way in this time of invitation. And Jesus, I pray it in your precious name. Amen.